This is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. A year ago, the country was reeling, emerging from the first wave of a viral pandemic shook by a blatant act of police violence in Minneapolis, shook by the demonstrations that followed in streets around the globe, and shook by the pushback that tried to contain the outrage. A year ago, we released the first episode of this podcast. Police officer Derek Chauvin, murder in the second degree. Imagine you pressing down on something eight minutes, just telling you I can't breathe, just begging for their life, and you keep pressing. What kind of mentality is that? We have permitted people to become officers of the law. That ought to be somewhere else in society. As a way to address racism as a public health issue, a year ago we invited two of our colleagues, two black women, friends, to talk through their reaction to George Floyd's murder and all that was following in its wake. To mark our first anniversary, we've invited our friends back. Jeremy Edmonds is the marketing and outreach liaison for Providence Elder Place, PACE, a program of all-inclusive care for the elderly. And Victoria Johnson is quality compliance specialist at Providence Elder Place. They both join me from Seattle. Victoria, Jeremy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you so much for having us back, Sean. So to begin, tell me about your reactions to the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Well, I think what first came to mind was just relief. Relief that the jury got it right. I have seen uh, from my own personal experience, my own life, many times where I felt that folks were going to be found guilty of what I felt were clear cases of police brutality or clear cases of hate crimes and racism only to be profoundly and bitterly disappointed upon how the jury looked at cases. And specifically, I'm talking about uh, George Zimmerman and the outcome in Trayvon Martin's murder. So for me, an overwhelming sense of relief that the jury saw it the way that I saw it and got it right and that the inner tension that I felt that were they going to do the right thing in that moment was dissipated. I did feel a sense of relief. And I think Jeremy hit the nail on the head. We've seen this happen 
so many times. And at this point, it just seems like it's every other month. And every single time we, we get faced with knowing what we think should happen or what, you know, all of the facts, we believe what this person should be considered, um, could be considered guilty and often they're not. So it was the first time, at least in my life, to see consequences come from that action. Did you watch the trial? I did. I watched all of it, yeah. Was that a hard decision? Why did you decide to sort of put yourself through hmm. seeing that testimony over and over again? Hmm. I guess the first response I have is thank you for even asking the question if it was hard, because most people don't think to ask that question. It was really hard. Uh, I felt that I had to relive in a voyeur kind of way, watching a terrible, horrible act that should never have happened over and over again. And I felt horrible for George Floyd's family to have to keep mm -hmm. witnessing that. So a lot of the time I felt very torn and conflicted about my own need to watch it that my, my, to make sure that history was recorded and to be a witness to what was being said. But also I have, I was conflicted about how many times do I need to see a video of this man's demise broken down into infinitesimal fragments and frames to get a, 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 a breakdown so someone could understand what we collectively feel on a very visceral and conscious level. And I felt horrible for the children who witnessed that man dying because Darnetta and that and her niece were able to articulate mm -hmm. pain mm -hmm. and and realizations that adults should have done in that situation and didn't. And you know, there's that old expression that that people in in I've heard it out of black churches where they say, and a child shall lead them. And I feel like between the children who video, who were there to witness his death, Darnetta, who at 17 videotaped it, and George Floyd's own child, who said, my daddy is going to change the world. Children were witnesses to this. Children were the ones who were the moral compass of this. And I just got tired of, on a very, a very an emotional level, emotional exhaustion, watching it play out day after day after day and watching the vociferous defense of this man who did the indefensible, watching everyone go through the machinations that he does, that, that, that he was going to get this trial and, and be seen through to the end. It was exhausting. It was exhausting. See, and I feel like I had, I had to watch it. I feel like there, you know what it is? It's that, that trial and that verdict captured one of the things that black individuals in this country have been screaming about for decades. And as much as I wish I could have turned off the TV or I could have walked away from it, it's not that easy. It's not that it's almost equivalent to you asking me, hey, Victoria, can you like stop being a black person for 20 seconds? It's just not possible. These are all part of our experiences. These are things that whether we like it or not are part of our reality. And I didn't take it as 
you know, the emotional exhaustion that it was, it wasn't until afterwards that I could actually put into words that I was emotionally exhausted. But that was my way of showing up for the issue. It's also a way to make sure that moving forward, I can make sure that I'm supporting anybody in this situation or anybody who's been a victim of police brutality. What can I do moving forward? And I know for a fact, I'm not gonna ask any of the questions that the defense asked. Um, I believe they asked a bystander, was he, was he angry? And they were making a very big deal about him being angry. And I, I think I actually took a life lesson from that gentleman because even when, even when you're angry and when everyone around you um, may be asking you, you know, why did you do this certain thing? Why did you react a certain way? Um, to keep that composure at that moment was just spoke so loudly. And it's something that to me, it was a life lesson, even in the face of adversity, your truth, even if it's wavering, even if you, you may have done something you didn't necessarily want to do, or, you know, maybe could be painted in a bad light. Um, it's still a form of the truth and that truth deserves to be said again and again and again. His answer to the defense attorney was so interesting, I thought. Do you remember he said, I was, I stayed in my body? Mm -hmm. I mean, he was like, don't try to paint me as being some crazy person who lost his uh, touch with reality. It's like, I was in my body. I was in the present. You know, it's like, I was witnessing something, and I'm here to tell you what I witnessed. It was a very powerful moment. Then the converse of that, Sean, was that, George Floyd wasn't allowed that that grace. Yeah. And I, let me explain. We talked a lot in this trial. For me, what came up part of the emotional exhaustion was that we were still talking about the physicality of black men. We were still discussing how George Floyd was gonna somehow demonstrate superhuman adrenal ability to throw four men off his body. And on when he was pinned on his side with the ground being a very firm resistance to him, all of these things were going to perpetuate the myth of the superhuman Negro. Mm -hmm. We are tired mm -hmm. of that. We're tired of that. We are so, that, that myth of the superhuman Negro, I mean, I'm using an old term, but I'm doing it on purpose, is what got Dante Wright shot, is what got Anthony Brown shot. Again, men fleeing scenes with their backs turned, but somehow, Somehow, in those moments, black men are, have some superhuman ability to outlast and to do things that other people can't do. They're not mere mortals then. Lord knows, you know, a highly physical, sexualized brute that is going to ravage society. And it bothered me deeply that, once again, it was muted and it was a permutation of that myth. Yeah. But it's the same myth. It's, and, and I get tired of the denial. And, and this leads to one of the topics that Tori and I wanted to talk about, justice versus accountability. Yes. Um, yes. Can I? If you, you <laughs> go, go right ahead, because I have my, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up after you're done. I'll say what you got to say. You go first, Tor. I did not feel like it was justice because justice, when broken down, there's two schools of thought. 
there's proactive and then there's reactive justice. Proactive means you go out into the community, you establish a presence with the very people that you are serving and protecting. But reactive means that something went wrong and now we have to go back and fix it, hence reaction. And that's what it felt like. Because at the end of the day, justice would mean, in plain terms, an eye for an eye. I don't think that very many Black people were sitting there thinking to themselves, I want this person dead. He deserves to be to be, you know, asphyxiated in the middle of the street in front of a grocery store. I don't know very many people who felt that way. But what we did want was we wanted to know, was this family going to be OK? To me, Derek Chauvin being found guilty to me didn't feel like justice. It felt like the first step in the right direction, which is accountability. Mm -hmm. Because in order for us to grow, and and I would even say, not even as a society, just look at you know your personal life. Let's say you're late for work one morning or you're late for work for an entire week. At some point, you have to take accountability and say, wow, I've been late. I should do something differently so I don't become late. But that very first step is always, always, always identification and accountability. And that's what it was. I feel like it was a step in the right direction where we are beginning to understand that there are actions or there are consequences for every action. And in this case, especially with police brutality, if you are taking an oath to protect and serve, that does not mean that you can turn your gun around and aim it at the people that you are serving. But until we are at a place where we can move into proactive justice, where a police officer doesn't reach for their holster or reach for what they think is the taser, but it's really a gun. Until we get to the point where that's not even a thought that crosses someone in power's mind, we won't be at justice because justice means that George Floyd would be able, would have been able to go home and grow with his family. He would be able to spend time with, with his children and he doesn't get that. Therefore, in a way, as much as I want to believe that justice, you know, is is going to be served. Unfortunately, when we think of the model of justice, she's holding a scale and her eyes are blindfolded. But that doesn't take away from the other things that will still be impacting a decision, because what black people have seen is justice is not blind. We do not get the same the same opportunities to walk into a store and walk out. God forbid the person is, you know, having a bad day or I look suspicious. But all of these things can't happen until accountability happens. But it's very important to note that accountability and justice are not the same thing. And we have to continue moving and fighting to get to a place where we do see justice because justice it's the only way we're going to move, but it's but we can't put lipstick on on justice and say that she's Miss America because that's not how it works. Jeremy. And, and yes, and to be and this is where for black folks, it's, this is where, Sean, our heads explode. So here we have um, here we have the verdict. We have Derek Chauvin rightfully convicted on all three counts. And let's talk about that. We weren't sure we were going to get justice on all three counts. In in many black communities, we were like, gosh, are they going to go for all three? Are they going to do it? We didn't know. So we were happy about that. But then we find out in the media, less than while the verdict is being read, a 16-year-old girl has taken four bullets to her chest. Now, the girl had a knife in her hand. I understand that. 
But my thing is, you could have shot her in the leg. Why are you shooting to kill a child? She's a 16-year-old girl. Anthony Brown was driving away. Dante Wright happened during the trial. And for black folks, we start saying, so every time we get a measure of accountability, are we going to have to pay for it somewhere else? Because that's how it feels. That's what it feels like. Back to this accountability versus justice, you know, George Floyd died over a counterfeit $20 bill. But that white man in Georgia got to murder eight people and drive down two counties before he was stopped. This is the kind of stuff that makes our head explode, Sean. It makes our head explode, literally. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense to anyone. How is it that that is okay? How is it that the man who was murdered, the people in the South Carolina, uh, the Charleston church, the folks who were practicing choir rehearsal who saw a troubled young man stumble through their door and offered him solace. He murdered nine of them, and the cops took him out for Burger King. These are the things that drive us crazy, because they aren't accountability, and they certainly aren't justice. And the man, again, George Floyd died over a counterfeit $20 bill that he didn't even know was counterfeit. You had a 19-year-old shopkeeper in that trial looking at the prosecutor saying, what if I just hadn't said anything? What if I had just paid it myself? I tried to pay it myself. My manager wouldn't let me because he thought somehow he could have made himself accountable to what happened. He can't be accountable for what happened. Only Derek Chauvin and those other three police officers are accountable for what happened. And our society tried to find every other way we could not to hold them to that fact until those 12 people did. That's, that's the long and the short of it. Too many people have been on the wrong side of that. What was your reaction to seeing Derek Chauvin's bond revoked and him put in handcuffs? There was a moment where he had this look on his face where he looked at the judge and he looked at the jury and he just was like, for real? Right. It did, did that really just happen to me? Did this just happen to me? There are two visuals that hit me very powerfully during that trial. One was Derek Chauvin standing up and put his hands behind his back and see him handcuffed the way he handcuffed George Floyd. Mm. And then earlier in the trial, seeing Charlie McMillan, the older witness, breaking down in tears and contrasting that image of a of an older black man crying right. on the stand, overcome with the emotion of having to retell the story mm -hmm. of watching a man being murdered in the street. Yeah. Contrasting that with what you talked about, Jeremy, of the sort of superhuman Negro, to see a very vulnerable Charlie McMillan on the stand living out his humanity for everybody to see. I mean, the trial had to stop for a couple minutes so that he can compose himself. And I thought, thank God someone is having a reaction to what they saw on that street. You know, that's the other image that stood out in my head was, you know, we all know the image of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck, but really, if you watch the tape in the trial, and I didn't see this until I saw the video in the trial, there's a part of the video where he is so detached from what is going on, I'm talking about Derek Chauvin, mm -hmm. that he picks a rock out of his tire. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. 
that's the image that stays with me that you have 91 and a half pounds of force of, of your knee in one spot on a man's neck who's begging you to breathe. And you have the cacophony of everyone around you screaming at you, please get off his neck, please stop. But you have the ability, Derek Chauvin, to detach yourself enough and to compartmentalize enough that you can go, oh, there's a piece of glass in my tire. Mm -hmm. That to me spoke volumes. That was what I needed to see. And that to me is the image that I will carry with me about this trial. That is the lasting image for me because that said it all. He did not care in his mind that George, George Floyd, again, we've dealt with this. Another one of the mythologies is that we're not human beings. I talked about this in the first podcast I did. Derek Chauvin felt right then and there that he was not dealing with a human being. Had George Floyd been blonde and blue-eyed and maybe a female persuasion, I don't think he would have been on her, on that person's neck nine minutes and 36 seconds or 29 seconds. Who cares? He wouldn't have been on his, her neck. Never would have happened. Never would have been an issue. Can we just speak to what a reality that is? Because even, and, and I want to, I want to call this out in a very specific way because we're coming up on a year since Jeremy and I sit down, sat down and did this recording. Um, we're coming up on a full year and a lot of things have happened and it's not lost on me. I think one of the hardest parts of just time itself was moving from what, what an awful and taxing year 2020 was. And then what, January 6th, there was the insurrection of the Capitol and every black person I know, every black person we all just had this feeling of we couldn't shake it. We couldn't shake that really gross feeling of, well, if you were, if these were black people doing it, they'd all be dead. But because they're white, they get to take pictures with security. So I just wanna wanna call that out um, because even looking, I feel like being a black person in this country is you are constantly aware of the injustices, the discrimination, how just overall unfair it is. You're constantly made aware of it at every moment and you still have to carry yourself as though nothing is wrong, which is why the older gentleman at the trial showing emotion was was so was so much and was so emotional was because we never get to do that. We never get to be in in the public light and cry and break down or be upset. We don't get to storm the Capitol. We barely can even have a protest without that going wrong, even if it's peaceful, because people will determine, oh, they're protesters fighting for something that I don't believe in. So therefore, what happened in one place? Somebody tried to run over protesters with a car? Yeah, Charlotte's, yeah, or Charlottesville, North Carolina. And it's all these things. It's like, if I were to just replace myself with the driver or put myself in that situation, I know that I, I probably wouldn't come out alive. And that is the most infuriating piece of information, infuriating piece of knowledge that I as a black woman carry with me every single day. So to see somebody in that moment having to recompose themselves, honestly, I was, I felt liberated. I was like, finally, finally, we are just given the grace 
to experience emotion. Given the grace to be a human being. Exactly. Amen. Mm -hmm. You know, January 6th was very illuminating. I cried when I actually burst into tears at, at what was going on. And I did it on a personal level and a public level, the reaction. And the personal level is, is that my sister's uh, longtime boyfriend is a Capitol Hill police officer. So he was there in that day, in that pile of crap, trying to, to, to be a black man protecting our capital and got called everything in the book. I mean, can you imagine, can you just imagine doing your job, protecting senators, doing this and having that angry mob call you every, every awful epithet you can think of? I, I don't know how he, de he dealt with it. I actually called and talked to him on the phone and just thanked him for protecting our country and thanked him for being, you know, just, I'm so glad you're okay. And he, and he thanked me. He almost, he, he took time out of his incredibly busy day, like January 7th to take my call to hear me say concern for him and that he was thankful. So that's on a personal level, but on a, on a public level, when Joe Biden got up in that press conference afterwards and said, you know, if these people had been black, none this would not have been, the streets would have been red with blood. That was what Joe Biden said. I cried, <laughs> I cried because I felt like it was a, a validation. It was a very, in, it wasn't a reaction I expected to have. I was angry about September 6th, but Sean, I cried because I realized he was right. right. Part of this journey for me is screeching from the rooftops and for anyone who's screaming from the rooftops is that I wanna be seen as a human being and I wanna be seen and be validated and I'm tired of being dismissed and every single essence of my existence. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of being dismissed as a black woman, I'm tired of being dismissed as a gay woman. I'm tired of being dismissed as a black person in this country. And so when I see others championing, championing my cause, our cause and lending credence and validity to what we've always known, that's the reaction I have. It's, it, I can't control it. I don't, it doesn't last long, but that's how I feel. It's relief and validation. And it usually comes out in the form of tears because I don't know how else to express it. But that is what I feel. That is what I feel. January 6th showed me a lot of things. What I saw January 6th is that racism in this country, we haven't moved the needle at all. I think that what we've done is done a very good job of burying a lot of things and hiding them. But I think racism in every essence is alive and well in this country. I think that, you know, the internet makes it so that we can see these things and be aware of them with a sense of immediacy. But no, I don't, I don't see any change. I don't see any change or movement of the needle in my lifetime at all. You could take events that happened in 2021 and you could change the dates to 50 years ago and they would be the same or 150 years ago and they would be the same. It hasn't changed. And that's the exhaustion and the anger you hear from black Americans. We're tired, just tired, tired of it all. That's Jeremy Edmonds from Providence Elder Place in Seattle. Also with us, her colleague, Victoria Johnson. We're marking the first anniversary of the Hear Me Now podcast by revisiting the topic of our first episode, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, its aftermath, and racism as a public health issue. Jeremy and Victoria, let me ask you about the social movement we saw manifest itself in the immediate aftermath 
of George Floyd's murder. And especially, I want to ask you about how this was expressed in healthcare circles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we saw what I believe was an unprecedented expression of social concern. We, we saw it in hospitals, systems, in medical schools, among providers affiliated with the White Coats mm -hmm. for Black Lives effort. We saw video conferences and education efforts aimed at extending the reach mm -hmm. of messaging that promotes diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm curious mm -hmm. what you make of all those efforts. Well, you know, Tori and I talked about this, and that's one of the things that we're, we wanted to talk to you about, and we had framed that under allyship. For me, it's bittersweet. I feel that in the very small pond that I exist in at Providence, I see people being way more aware and making a huge conscious effort to do things differently. I see it on all levels of the organization. I see it happening organically from the ground up, and I see it happening on a systemic organizational level. And I say, hooray, I'm thrilled that that's happening. I still find that there are instances and times when I bristle at healthcare's cumbersome and clumsy way of dealing with BIPOC people and the healthcare system. And let me give you an example. Um, along the lines of trying hard, I went to a member meeting where they were rolling out some marketing materials and they had a picture of an obvious BIPOC woman. She had on a scarf. I could infer that she might be by her skin color, maybe Hispanic, or maybe she was a Muslim woman, but she's not white. And she's an older woman and it's talking about a, a PACE program. And it said, PACE allows. And I wrote to the host of the seminar and I said, you know, you really got to work on this language. There's a lot of better words you could use. PACE supports would be one. I said to her, I need you to understand there's a Eurocentrism that you've got here of a white person allowing a person of color access to health care. I need you to see that. And I got crickets. I didn't get anything on it. But see, those are the next steps we need to take. You really got to be careful about your messaging. You really have to be careful, healthcare, about how exclusionary that you are. I mean, I feel that there's low-hanging fruit even here at Providence that could be addressed. I think that there are stories that are told with regard to oh i love i love the sisters who form providence but i i find that there are sometimes things that like some of the depictions of historical times that involve people of color and the sisters we could be telling a different story i'm all for telling the story of mother joseph and mother gamlin i think it's a beautiful story but why does it have to be at the expense of Native Americans? Because what I see is all I see is that 6,000 Native languages and 6,000 cultures were taken over by the invasion of these Native lands as we decided to make the United States. And that doesn't make me feel good. So the long and the short of it is, on the, the short end, I really see people making advances one of the things I don't particularly like is that sometimes the people making advances forget who they're talking to. They don't always ask my opinion or a person of color's opinion, does this sound right? Or are we heading down the right road? And I appreciate your enthusiasm, but you know what? Check yourself. Why don't you ask somebody instead of just assuming that what you think is right? Because it's not.
And it's really hard because on the one hand, do I want to bite off the hand of an ally? No. But at the other hand, you're not being much of an ally if what you're saying isn't helpful to the conversation. If you're not even willing to explore that maybe some of your Eurocentric ideas really aren't helpful. That doesn't help anybody, but no. So that's my latest frustration. Can I remind you that a year ago when the two of you were on the podcast, you said, keep reaching out even if you get your hand slapped? Sounds like something we would say. Do you remember saying that? Yeah, that, if I, and they're going to get their hand slapped. You're right. And I did say that and I meant it and I still mean it and I'm still there. And, I'm st and, I, and you know what? Here's the thing, Sean. There have been people that have come up to me to have those deep conversations. And every one of them has been a rewarding experience where real understanding and exchange of ideas happened. What I'm referring to is some of these kind of systemic things where I didn't get a chance to slap the hand. I didn't even get to see the hand. It was just a matter of, it was like, this is how it is. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm still willing to slap a couple hands for sure. Victoria. Um, so I... I will agree with Jeremy. I feel pretty good about some of the things we're seeing, especially in the the health arena, just because that is a huge health disparity um, when it comes to access and even just if you wanted to get into quality of care. So I'm excited to see this change, um, especially within our arena. But I do want to echo Jeremy that there are going to be instances um, because we, for lack of a better term, we're tired. Um, we've seen this happen so many times. We've also tried to have the conversation numerous times um, and it doesn't always play out the way we necessarily want it to. Um, I do appreciate, um, and this is something that Jeremy and I had talked about this past um, week, was we do appreciate the effort for, I don't know if that, that matters to really anybody, but, um, you know, as long as the effort is there, there are going to be times where maybe we might slap your hand. But honestly, I feel like the people that have come up to me and Jeremy to have these conversations, they've been extremely rewarding. Um, I not only got to learn more about myself, I got to learn about another person that I work with. I also got to understand more about their culture and maybe some of the ways that institutional racism occurs from in someone else's life from a very young age all the way up. Um, so I'm I'm happy with it. And I've seen so much happening, especially within Providence. Providence is just an organization that I'm really happy to be a part of um, for opportunities just like this, as well as I think there's, there's an overarching diversity, equity, and inclusion um, committee. And then there's one within PACE as well, as well as different of our service lines. This is part of my, my new role that changed a little bit since um, we spoke last year for the podcast. So I'm actually, so I'm currently in quality and compliance, um, but I was also presented a wonderful opportunity to work with our chief equity officer, um, Amy Koo. So I will be doing a little bit, um, or I'm moving into diversity, equity, and inclusion with Providence Home and Community Care and the PACE program. Oh, that's great. Isn't that amazing? That's really wonderful. Yeah. I know. I'm so proud of my work daughter. And to that same token, that's one of the gifts I've gotten from this work, too, is that I'm on... Um, 
Amy Koo's advisory committee to senior leadership and work with a lot of folks in all different divisions of Providence. So it's really hard work, but it's really rewarding. And um, Amy's amazing. Uh, she's an amazing person to work with, um, as well as everybody else on the task force. And I'm just really grateful to senior leadership, to people at Providence who really wanted this change to happen because it just couldn't be you know, a few of us who wanted it, a lot of us did. And it's just so nice to see that I work in a place of like-minded people who believe we can make real change in the world. And honestly, that gets me up every day and helps me to do my job. And it's not just, it's not just even, you know, a comment or a statement. It's truly felt in every aspect of the work that we do from the managers we work with to the patients that we get to serve to the adult family homes assisted living facilities like it has completely spread across um, at least the healthcare network within Seattle and being a part of that and just watching it it's like watching a wave in slow motion um, you get to see all the intricacies you get to see how each each piece maybe changes or manipulates itself a little bit so that it can make way for the new pieces. Um, and it's so beautiful and it's it's powerful. And as Jeremy put, it really is one of the reasons I get out of bed. I think I've spent the last month every weekend doing meditations, looking at how can I become the best version of myself working with Providence and really addressing health equity and inclusion how can i become the best version of that how can i make that not just my job mission but my personal mission and you can't you can't recreate that feeling just anywhere it's like telling you hey i'm gonna i have a surprise for you but you know it's coming but i want you to pretend you're surprised it's never truly as real as when it when you're watching it happen for the very first time and so each of our i would say even with jeremy and i both of our reactions just over the last year, we've been pleasantly just surprised and I've even been moved to tears just how much work is being done to really address this area. Um, and even to that point, I think what we're seeing now is not only are we addressing it as an organization or as a society, but we've recognized that even with the, the Derek Chauvin um, verdict, there's still work to be done. And so that momentum also hasn't been lost, which I'm extremely grateful for, because it's very easy to, for, for a group of people, or even to say, oh, well, we got the verdict. So, you know, everything's right in the world, but especially as, as health professionals, to look at it and say, no, there, there's still something that we can do differently and holding on to that, it's, it's monumental, it's amazing. So last fall, Providence launched um, a five-year, $50 million campaign to address health inequity, inspired in part by your appearance on our inaugural podcast a year ago. What's your reaction to that investment spinning off of your words? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is, wow, and I'm very um, humbled, really humbled, that, that anything that Victoria and I said had resonated with people in such a way that they felt a call to action. And that was the first thing. And the other reaction I have is, 
um, thank you. And it's about time that it was a, a nice big number to really put some um, change in effect. And I was so proud that, that, our, that the organization that I worked for did something that quickly and didn't just put token dollars behind it. They put real dollars behind it. Dollars that mean by that many of them that you really are committed to seeing this in the long haul. And I've been so gratified to be a part of um, several groups the, that have come out of this work. Um, as Victoria mentioned, PACE's own DEI group, the uh, diversity work being done, directly being um, worked on by Amy Koo, the uh, Black Caregivers Group that both Victoria and I are, are part of that gives uh, uh, caregivers in Providence throughout the entire region an ability to connect and to uh, foster community. And none of that would have happened had we not all decided to take a look at how the status quo was and do something about it. And, and it has made me so proud of where I work. It's made me so proud. Like my chest is puffed out with my <laughs> orange and blue cross when I walk into a place and say, yeah, I work for Providence and let me tell you what we're doing. Let me tell you what I get to be a part of in my day. And it's, it means that my day is rewarding and fulfilling on so many levels. Not only do I get to help old people, I get to change the face of healthcare. And who doesn't want at the end of the day to know that something that they did mattered to someone. That's really what it's about. What's, that's what we're trying to do and have connection. I'm just so proud to say I work for Providence. I've never been prouder in my life to say I work for Providence or to be proud of an organization in terms of what they're trying to do. As hard as it is, it's hard, but I'm, and there's a lot of getting in the weeds and drilling down into dashboards and numbers. I wasn't excited about that, but I get, but I get it. It's part of the work. And if you're really going to make this change, this is the kind of thorough vetting you have to do. And I'm just so proud of the people who have decided to lean in. It's really amazing. Both of you described your relationship last year as being work mother, work daughter. And I guess I kind of want to know whether with the new jobs, whether you're still able to sort of check in with one another often. Have you been able to have you been able to rely on one another during this year? Yeah. And we touched on it earlier. Like it's been a whole year. It's been 365 days, 12 months. And let's just take a second and reflect on 2020 in a nutshell. So beyond um, police brutality, we had murder hornets. We had conversations about global warming. We've had a lot of things happen in the last year, so it is a-okay. Um, I am very happy to say that Jeremy and I still call each other, still text each other, still send each other videos. Um, She's still my work Still daughter. check in with each other. Yeah, we still check in with each other. All the it's, time. It's great. Yep, it hasn't changed a bit. You know, sometimes we have to like make time in our lives to say, we need to go have lunch like we just need lunch please let's go have lunch and we do but you know yeah we're the same how has the pandemic been for the two of you i found a new love of gardening <laughs> I, I, oh, I, good for you. yeah 
I want to write a book and I want to title it The Reluctant Gardener because I didn't want to be a gardener. I had no desire to be a gardener, but that's all I had to keep myself sane during the pandemic. I did a lot of outside things, a lot of wood stacking and, um, you know, anything, yard cutting, you know, anything to keep myself out of my head um, during the pandemic because, like Tori said, we were just really dealt that pretty big crap sandwich as a society, you know, economy and the pandemic and racial uh, unrest. It's just more than most folks can take. But I see light at the end of the tunnel. I'm really just waiting for a chance for all of us to have real connection again and be able to just really, you know, get together in a big communal setting and really ask each other the question, how the, how the heck are you and how are you doing? And mean it with sincerity. I, I'm kind of looking forward to that day when I get to greet people with my whole face and not just my eyes and, you know, hug somebody because I want to hug them and not worry and have to say to them, I had a vaccination or explain myself or I'm, I'm ready to get back to a normal life. You know, I actually, so COVID was interesting. The pandemic has been very interesting. Um, I was supposed to get married last year in August, um, but I was not able to due to the pandemic. Um, and so we've had to push our wedding quite a few times. However, I actually appreciated the pandemic and I appreciated everything about 2020. Um, I often tell people when I'm thinking about 2020 is when you go to the doctor, you want your vision to be as close to 2020 as possible, right? So maybe 2020 was the year where everything got put into focus and it may not have been the best year, but maybe that's exactly what we needed to see in order to identify what kind of changes we had to make as a culture and as a society. So for me, I will say that I use pretty much the latter half of the pandemic once I understood kind of, okay, we're not going anywhere. Um, I used the second half of the pandemic to really address some of, um, some of my own issues, some of the things that I'm dealing with, some of the things that I'm trying to work through um, and really kind of figure out what kind of person I wanna be and what kind of woman, especially a black woman, what, what impression do I wanna leave on the world when all of this is said and done? Um, so I really appreciated the pandemic to, to help me kind of recenter myself. And I think Jeremy would also maybe echo and agree that that time during the pandemic actually helped us get into our new positions or in our new places where we are now was being able to shift and look at, okay, things are this, this is nice, but it's not great. What can I do to make the most out of every day that I'm on this earth? Well, um, I want to thank the two of you for coming back a year later and having this conversation. Um, it's really great to hear from both of you. It's great to see that the wisdom spigot hasn't been turned off on, uh, with either one of you. I'm so impressed by the processing that you've done in your head and in your heart and in your bodies. It's quite remarkable. And, um, a real font of wisdom for us. And uh, please, please know how grateful we are. Oh, Sean, if I had a tail, I'd wag it. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. That made me, that was like the high part of <laughs> <that was> the <laughs> nicest thing anyone said to me in a long time.
And I I just want to highlight that it's not lost on us, you know, the fact that Providence has really allowed us the opportunity to speak on this, speak on something that's both very near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, So I really want to thank not just Providence, the Institute of Human Caring, as well as everyone on the call today for organizing this, for bringing us back um, and allowing us to fellowship not just um, about issues that are really important to us, but issues that impact our entire um, our entire community and our entire society um, and the human race. So we were just very humbled. Ditto. And I thank you so much for this time. Jeremy Edmonds is the marketing and outreach liaison for Providence Elder Place, PACE, a program of all-inclusive care for the elderly in Seattle. And Victoria Johnson is Quality Compliance Specialist at Providence Elder Place. The two were our guests on the very first episode of this podcast a year ago. You can hear that conversation at hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter for programming updates at human underscore caring. The podcast is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett with help from Will Rogers. We have research help from Heather Martin, Catherine Gibbs, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, and Amanda Schwartz. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal, the executive producer is Michael Drummond. Special thanks to our guests who have shared their expertise and enthusiasm with us for these past 22 episodes. You've made a year of conversations that matter effortless. We want to end this anniversary episode with a prayer and a song. It comes to us from Spencer LaJoy, who does a really amazing job of touching on the aspects of human caring that are important to us and to you. Dear blessed creator, dear mother, dear savior, dear father, dear brother, dear holy other, dear sibling, dear baby, dear patiently waiting, dear sad and confused, dear stuck and abused, dear angry, forsaken by family, dear jaded and quiet, dear tough and defiant, I
That's Spencer LaJoy and a Plowshare Prayer. You'll find a link to their work on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean Collins. Be well.